listening to The Currency. Welcome. I'm Mike Gaston. I am your host. Glad to have you guys along. Thanks for joining me today. This is episode number 113 of The Currency, and I have a special treat for you today. I have a guest. It's been a very long time uh, since we've had anybody on the show, but I am thrilled to have Myron Weber with me today. Now, Myron, uh, in his day job, is the founder of Northwood Advisors. Northwood helps clients solve interesting data problems at the core of their business, but he's also the co-host of a podcast called Mental Supermodels, and that podcast explores the theory, practice, art, and science of mental modeling for problem-solving and decision-making. And Myron, I am thrilled to have you on the show. Welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. This is great. I'm a fan of the podcast and uh, am honored to be here. Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you and, and my mom, uh, probably the biggest listeners on the show. So <laughs> really grateful. I'm in good company. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, quite funny enough, I don't think my mother listens to the podcast. So <laughs> I can't even claim that. But um, it's been great. The show's been wonderful for me as a host because I get the opportunity to meet people like you. That audience grows, people reach out and let me know what they think of the show. We get to interact and it's it's like a bit of a community. And you reached out not too long ago. Uh, I had maybe some comments on democracy and you said, hey, I was a guest on a show recently and uh, you might be interested in some of the conversation. And I listened to it. And I thought, you know what, you and I need to talk. Uh, what what was the topic? I mean, I know what the topic was, but for the audience, what, what was the show that you were on and what were you guys talking about? Yeah, the podcast uh, is called Mentally Unscripted. So as as you mentioned, I'm co-host of, of Mental Supermodels, where, where we talk about mental modeling. And there's another podcast called Mentally Unscripted that I highly recommend. The two hosts there, uh, Scott and Stefan, uh, invited me to come on and talk about this topic of democracy and the whole concept of uh, how we think of America uh, sometimes as a democracy and then other times folks will say, well, it's obviously it's it's uh, it's not a uh, democracy, it's a republic. And, and so that was kind of some some thoughts that I had around that was really what we discussed. Yeah, and I I was fascinated by that discussion. I kind of want to pick up aspects of it, so I'm glad I'm glad that we're kind of kicking it off around this. Before we get into that topic, though, I do want to take a minute and have you talk a little bit about mental supermodels. I've listened to a couple episodes, and um, I really like what you guys are doing on that podcast. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what your show is about? No, no, happy to. So yeah, my co-host uh, Jeremy Thomas and I, uh, we have worked together uh, off and on over the years and found that we we think very similarly in, in some ways, although I, I'm a little more maybe ivory tower theoretical and, and Jeremy is more practical, but we both tend to naturally think in terms of mental models in, in the way that we approach problem solving and decision making. And so we did an entire season one really focused on sort of enterprise decision making mental modeling techniques. And that was really a lot of fun. And we've honestly struggled a little to get season two kicked off, but we're now uh, uh, in recording episodes and releasing episodes for season two where I think we're going to talk about a number of topics, but we really want to focus on on finance, including cryptocurrencies. We did an episode on Bitcoin that we've gotten great feedback on. So if there's someone who really wants to understand uh, not just, hey, there's this crazy thing out there called Bitcoin, but really a mental model for understanding Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, go check that out at uh, mentalsupermodels.com. 
Oh, that's cool. I'll what I'll do. I'll make sure to put a link to the show in the show notes for for this episode. Folks can just go to mikegaston.com forward slash the currency one one three. Just my website, the currency one one three, and I will make sure that there's a link to Myron's show there, so you can check that out. I also put a link to Myron's. Um, consulting group, Northwood Advisors. So I'm assuming the podcast content and focus overlaps with your work uh, on a day-to-day basis. Is that accurate or is that not not true? No, it, it is true. In fact, um, the idea of mental modeling and really focusing on that as a uh, as a specific discipline, of course, you, there's not a degree in mental modeling that I know of uh, anywhere, uh, but I I was in a working on a project for a large uh, company, a large media company, and in a meeting I presented a mental model because it was a, a project was just kicking off and and everything was very undefined and there was a kickoff meeting and no one really knew what the agenda was and so I just said well let's walk through a mental model of how to approach possible solutions to this problem. And the project sponsor was really kind of amazed by that after the meeting pulled me aside and she said, that's, that's, uh, you know, really incredible. I've never seen (laughs) anyone do a mental model like that. And it struck me then that it's something that sort of came naturally to me and doesn't come naturally to everyone. And so that was, uh, I want to say probably 13 or 14 years ago. So I realized it's something that is just kind of the way I think. But since then, I've been um, kind of intentionally trying to cultivate mental modeling as a skill and a discipline and thinking about it and trying to teach it to others. That's interesting. I am busy speaking with a young man who may or may not be my eldest son. And, um, <laughs> and you know, he's in his late 20s and he's trying to navigate his career. He's got a degree in econ and has been an analyst, data analyst, but he's working he wants to make the transition over to strategy work. And I think he's coming to the realization that not everybody thinks strategically. And I think that's a surprise to him. He's just assuming, you know, when you're younger, you don't always know how different you may or may not be. And um, he's coming to the realization that like strategy thinking is kind of a rare currency, if you will. And I'm telling him, yeah, it took me till I was in my forties to figure out, figure it out. You're uh you're onto something there. So, so well, I will recommend that he check out uh, uh, Mental Supermodels uh, uh, season one. And I, I want to give credit to Jeremy, my co-host. Jeremy developed a six-stage mental model of how to develop strategy and then move to execution. So we call oh. it the strategy to execution yeah. model. And so I, we have, I think. Uh, 16 episodes uh, that we did on walking through all the stages of that strategy to execution model. So this young man who may or may not be your son and anyone else who's interested in that can certainly check it out. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure that link is there, but obviously the next time I'm talking to him and he does every once in a while, he's surprised me. He's like, Hey dad, I was listening to your podcast uh, or I watched one of your YouTube videos. And it's always, you know, it's one thing when someone else that you don't know watches. Okay. But when a family member takes time, uh, they don't have to do it, but they take time to listen because they already hear, you know, my wife or my son, children, they hear me a lot anyway. So it's kind of nice, but I'll make sure he gets connected to that. Thank you. Well, this idea of mental models, so I want to use that as a bit of a segue because we referred earlier to this discussion you had on uh, the other podcast 
and you were talking about, you know, this discussion around democracy versus republic, meaning America is a democracy. No, America is a republic. And I have to admit, I've been guilty. I think, I don't know if it was you, but I think one of the hosts of the show kind of made the joke that, or maybe it was you, that, you know, some people will bring up the democracy and then then someone will always go, well, hold on a second. America's really uh, a republic. And I have to admit, I am one of these people that, that insists that that's brought to the table. And I, I, I had to laugh because I felt caught out when I was listening to you guys talk. But this discussion around democracy versus republic, I'd like you to share kind of your thoughts on it. But the reason I say that we're doing a segue, uh, I feel like you're approaching it from more of a mental model perspective versus just a historical argument or a political expediency argument. Do you mind kind of unpacking it a little bit for the audience? Yeah, yeah, you're exactly on the right track, and I'm happy to. And and yeah, I I did say that, and and the way all these thoughts started because uh, Mike, I absolutely would have been in the same boat of being someone uh, making that same statement. It's not it's not a democracy; it's a republic. But I overheard <laughs> a conversation between two other people. I wasn't part of it; not even people that I know. Uh, but I overheard the conversation, and one of the people. Uh, said something about America being a democracy, and the other person didn't just correct them. They corrected them in kind of the obnoxious way that we've probably all heard. Well, actually, America isn't a democracy; it's a republic. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know the tone. And I wouldn't probably have even given another thought if I hadn't just been a little like irked by their tone. So I didn't jump into the conversation or anything, but it, it just got me thinking and. And so I realized after reflecting on it for a while that I think that's a really a false dichotomy. Uh, it's not that republic is the opposite of democracy. I, I developed this mental model of those as two different vectors. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is democracy uh, refers to the nature and scope of the the voting franchise, and I just want to make sure the term franchise. Not everyone understands that that refers to That's voting. Subway, they think right? Of a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not a restaurant or a sports team. Franchise. Uh, the enfranchisement means uh, who gets to vote, right? And so the original voting franchise in America was very limited and now it's very broad. And so I think of democracy as the nature and scope of the voting franchise, whereas republic refers to the extent to which public policy accurately expresses the desires of the voters. So that's the first distinction, I guess, in, in the mental model. There's more to it, but maybe I should pause there before I go sermonizing about it. No, I like that. And, and, and I think, um, I'd like you to keep going. It's, it's interesting because that tone that actually, I kind of laugh about that. What, what I've been aware of is that the, uh, the distinction I make is the country was founded as a Republic, a classical Republic, but it's over time evolved to more of a democracy. And I think that evolution has happened as more and more people have been enfranchised. Initially you had to be a white I don't, know if it didn't, I don't think skin color mattered, but you had to be a, a male landowner, which was typically white, I think, just by default. And right. if, you, if you were going to vote, and then that's evolved to saying, no, we've given the vote to every every adult and uh, that's a citizen. So I think that that it, there's been a bit of an evolution, but I, I want you to keep going because I think that's a, an important 
I, I think, okay. um, yeah, yeah. Keep going with that because yeah, sure, I, I don't sure. think you're sermonizing at all. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, so then the, the next part is not only is it a false dichotomy between Republican democracy, but it's also, I think, incomplete, uh, because, uh, if we want to really expand on that and say America is not a democracy, we, we would say, well, it's not merely a democracy and it's not merely a republic. It, it, it is a constitutional federal republic with democratically elected representatives. And so that's really the mechanisms of government. We have those four originally intentionally built-in mechanisms of establishing governance in the United States of America. We have the Constitution. We have federalism, the balance of power between states and the national government. We have republicanism, which means that it's representative. And we have democracy, which means that those representatives are chosen by voting by whatever portion of the public is allowed to vote at that time. Uh, but really, when we think about it today, governance in America is not just by those four original intentional built-in mechanisms, we also have institutions that have developed over time that were not part of the built-in original. And that uh, would be a number of things. The most obvious ones, I would say, are the permanent bureaucracy, the standing military and intelligence uh, apparatus, the, the Federal Reserve, uh, and probably many more, but but that's those are the, the most obvious ones. So, so I think those are factual things that no one would probably disagree with fundamentally. Um, you know, I'm sure nuances that someone might sure. might take issue with. But then I go from that sort of factual thing to now a thesis that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about. And I, I'm the more I think about it, the more convinced I am that it's true. And that is that that. Maybe democracy, uh, to borrow the phrase from from Karl Marx, but democracy is the opiate of the people um, because we hear more and more talk about democracy and democracy being sacred and how wonderful democracy is. And we've got to spread democracy around the world. And meanwhile, through all of this expansion of voting franchise to more and more people and more and more emphasis on democracy, America has become less constitutional. It's become less federal, meaning power has shifted away from the states to the national government. And it's become less Republican in the sense that I think public policy is less and less reflective of the will of the people than it ever has been. So that is kind of my mental model and the thesis that I developed based on that mental model. I'm sure there are a lot of directions we can go from there, but uh, I'd love to know what you think of that. Well, yeah, let me and let me just I want to reiterate it to make sure that it, I'm understanding you correctly. So what you're saying is, number one, is you're stating some facts. You're trying to lay some groundwork about the country, one being that democracy versus uh, republic is a false dichotomy. Number two, that it's kind of, um, it's an incomplete model. It's not either or. And, and that there are these kind of extra, uh, extra, I don't know what to call them, entities that are not democratically uh, elected, things like the administrative state, military, and so on. So you're kind of observing the state of the nation, that it's kind of both. It's not either or. 
and uh, there's more going on. So the theory is that democracy, when you talk about as the opiate of the, the masses of the people, are you saying that because we're so enthralled or we've been sold, and I say sold sounds cynical, but we've been told that democracy, this is the narrative of our country, democracy, we're a democracy, your vote matters, um, that that has kind of distracted us from the erosion of some of these other foundational aspects, the constitution, republicanism, and, and the balance of federal versus state power? That's my thesis. And, and I'll, yeah, and I'll elaborate on it in a couple different dimensions and obviously jump in anytime if, if you want. But, uh, you know, so one, one way I think about it is, is this, we, um, you know, the rules of how we vote for elected representatives are very arbitrary when you think about it, right? So uh, in sports, let me just use sports as an analogy, right? You change the rules of, of basketball. I re- I'm old enough to remember when the NBA didn't have a three-point line. And you think of how different the game is when sure. they establish the three-point line uh, and, and, it, and it changes a lot of things. In a sport like basketball, you can change rules to make the game more interesting to for you know whatever purpose. But if they started changing the rules from one game to the next uh, to rig who was going to win, which I guess I've heard conspiracy theorists say they do, <laughs> but well, you know I'm not, I'm yeah. not going there, right? But we would we would say, well, that that's not fair. Uh, but the rules of democracy are extremely arbitrary, and what we've gotten to. In America, when you think about it, and, and I realize it's hard for people sometimes to hear someone question or criticize democracy. And I'm not coming at this to say I, I hate it or I, I, you know, throw it out or whatever. I'm just trying to think about it systematically. And so we have this huge landmass that stretches from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean and with 300, whatever, 360 million people or whatever the population is. We have the largest uh, budget, the largest military. So there's a huge amount at stake in every American election, allegedly. Of course, these other institutions control a lot. And so how much of it really depends on the election um, that I guess is part of what I'm questioning, but just just to set preconceptions aside and, and realize that everything that's at stake, and yet what we find is in presidential elections, most states are in the bag, and so it comes down to what they call the quote unquote battleground states. But even within those battleground states, it really comes down to you know a handful of counties, and so they, that with these massive things at stake. You, it's narrowed down to such a small pool of votes that are in play and they can market and they can gerrymander and they can do all of these things. So we have these incredibly arbitrary rules that somehow get treated as sacred. And uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, it's kind of a dumb system. It, well, I, I, I totally get that. I, I think it's it's one of these, it, you know, if you ever see a house, uh, you, I think you're in the West Coast on, in, is it Irvine? California? Uh, yeah, that's right. I, um, so if you ever see a, a house, I don't know if it shows up on the West Coast, but on the East Coast, like an old farmhouse that was built in the 1700s, and it's humble. This isn't like a beautiful structure. It's just a humble structure. But in the late 90s and the early 2000s, if you look, or today you're looking at this house, it will have all kinds of attachments. These houses become 
you know, a bit of a Frankenstein. So you've got yeah. kind of this, and, and often, you know, the folks doing the, it, they're being very pragmatic. They're not looking at, they're not saying, well, this is a, uh, this is a uh, colonial style house. We want to make sure we carry that architectural language and, uh, you know, gloss, uh, you know, glossary through, no, they're just slapping on whatever. And then you get these different styles. I kind of feel like our system is like that. Stuff just gets bolted on. Now, I do want to back up and challenge you. And I don't mean to say that I think you're wrong, but you say we treat it like it's sacred. And yet I look at this last election, like take Pennsylvania as an example. There are things that are particular and unique to Pennsylvania. They have a constitution. There are certain things that only authorized people can change. And yet at this election, the election official, the state election official just decided that they were going to change some of the rules. But the Constitution says, no, the PA legislature has to vote on these things. You can't just change them. So these things were enshrined and they were kind of sacralized. They were made sacred and yet they were ignored and no one seems to really care. I mean, I say no one. Look, there's a group of people that are upset about it. But as a country, we're kind of like, eh. I, I, I don't know. It's just a very, it's a very weird thing. I, I do agree in principle, but then in application, I, I'm not seeing the, uh, the reverence for the rules that you would think we'd see. Well, uh, yeah. And, and I don't know much about the specific Pennsylvania situation, but I, I'm sure what you're saying is true. Uh, but I guess, uh, I, I don't think that invalidates my my thesis. I think it it actually, to some degree, supports it uh, in the sense that what they really care about is getting to be named as the winner, right? Yes. If I can be named yeah. as the winner, then uh, then I get to be in charge. Doesn't matter how I get named the winner. I'm going to do everything I can. And the, these arbitrary rules, what's sacred is whoever gets called the winner now gets to claim the spoils. You know, the, mm -hmm. the Jacksonian uh, to the victor goes the spoils in, in American politics really seems to be more true than ever. And so uh, I agree with you that, that sort of the rules kind of get thrown out. But what is treated as sacred is got to be the winner, got to do whatever it takes to be named the winner and change the rules if necessary so that I can be called the winner. I agree. Um, yeah. And, and so, and, and I guess, again, back to my, to my thesis that perhaps this is all a distraction to get one side fighting to be the winner and the other side fighting to be the winner so that we don't all notice that the results of the elections actually matter less and less and less over time because no matter who wins, not much really changes. Why do you think that is? I mean, I, I'm tempted to ask the question, and we can maybe go back to it in a minute, uh, uh, about, you know, this. why is the system so confusing? But I, I think there's some obvious answers to that. Why is it that you think it doesn't matter? Well, I, I guess a couple things. One is uh, the stakes are so large, and you know we're we're in an experiment every single day uh, with with this whole thing because whenever you're doing something that's never ever been done before, it's hard to know what the outcome is going to be. And so, there's never been a country as large as this. There's never been. Uh, 
a budget this big, uh, you know, the rewards of being in charge are so incredible that, that the idea of, you know, what used to be called statesmanship, right. Uh, is largely out the window. It seems now people on both sides, uh, will claim that, you know, their candidates or their people are the good moral ones and the other, the other side is evil. But there just seems to be, you know, an increase in rent-seeking behavior that has been only reinforced by the fact that we have these massive unelected institutions, such as the, you know, the permanent bureaucracy, I, I liked your term for it, the administrative state, uh, and the military, and the you know, intelligence, the so-called deep state, um, the, the Federal Reserve, and all of these unelected institutions that are making a, a, uh, a tremendous amount of public policy, as well as, uh, as you pointed out in the Pennsylvania example, the ability for uh, executives uh, or, you know, members of the executive branch or other institutions to just change the rule. And, and the, uh, the alleged balance of power doesn't really hold them accountable. It's, it has become purely political and highly rent-seeking, and the stakes are so great that there's a lot of incentive for a, uh, you know, a, a greedy person or a power-hungry person to do whatever it takes to get control. I hate to be so cynical, but I, I don't know that many people would disagree with me on that. No, I think, uh, you know, look, when, when people are talking about their own team, because this is really, I think politics have become a team sport for the average American. The average voter is kind of, it, it's fun. I've, I've, I remember maybe people don't talk about this way in the last election or two, but people would get into it. It's like, it's like you know, um, it's election season. They're excited. They they're excited for the debates. They love the fight. Like they're people that, for them, this is a sport. And I think for a lot of us, we just kind of get into our team. So when it comes to talking about our team, we'll we'll be very defensive. Uh, we'll we'll assume and ascribe the best qualities to their behavior. But most people, when they're talking about politics in general and politicians as a category. I think would agree in a heartbeat. Ah, oh, they're terrible. Uh, they're corrupt. Uh, you know, you have to be a real partisan to say, no, 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 no. My, my uh, you know, like only the other side is corrupt. I think most people are cynical these days, but something happens when the, when the whistle blows and the game is on, it doesn't matter. I, I, I observe myself. I point in time, got into soccer, started watching European soccer. I watched, uh, you know, world cup and I thought this was great. I got into Spanish soccer, became a Barcelona fan, which I'm ashamed of now because I realize now they're socialists. I should have went with uh, with uh, Real Madrid, which is a monar you know the monarchy, the king. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But um, I observed myself whenever the other team committed a foul. I was outraged, and and I like that guy's dangerous. He's trying to hurt these players. He's reckless. He did it on purpose. But when my team would do the same thing, it was like, well, he was just going for the ball. Uh, mm. you know, he's just he's just playing, a, you know, he's just trying to win. He didn't mean to hurt anybody. And I real I reflected. I was like, there's there's definitely a a, a bias that we all, you know, at least I do. I, maybe I'm unique in the human race, but 
Yeah, that's a long way to say I, I agree. I think most people would agree with you that um, we are cynical about politics. But when it comes to the actual game, we have no problem uh, assuming the best about our guy and the worst about the other. Yeah, yeah. And and to that point that we that we touched on earlier of the idea of, of democracy being seen as sacred and this idea that, you know, just if you get declared the winner, then, you know, that's what matters. And, and then uh, all of the uh, hand-waving, you know, about democracy from either side. Oh, uh, you know, Trump is going to be a dictator and he's not going to honor democratic institutions. Oh, the election was stolen from Trump. And I'm not taking a side on either of those. Uh, I, I just, I'm trying to point out that it really is, just as you said, kind of the soccer fan uh, mentality and and the bias. But also, I think it really, I mean, I think there's a moral component to it because um, the original, the founding documents of America, uh, and, and I'm thinking of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and, you know, the writings of, of the founders, almost I mean, I can't think of an example where they deny natural law. And so they saw the institutions of governance that they were establishing with this uh, constitutional federal republic with democratic institutions. They saw it as being subject to natural law. But I don't really see in practice much recognition today, not only not only are the constitutional and the federal and the republic part of it being uh, overwhelmed, but the concept that anything is subject to natural law doesn't seem to be recognized. And so if, uh, you know, I think of it like, you know, it's sort of becoming more and more barbaric, right? So the, mm. the, uh, uh, the analogy people use to when they do criticize democracy sometimes is that it's like two lions and a zebra uh, voting on what's for lunch, right? And, and uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, then you think about it like the barbaric nature, if, if we really go back to nature, it gets more and more barbaric and it's just about power, right? And, and it almost just seems like the, the power is, is the end, which is if I can get control of this giant apparatus of the government, then I can do whatever I want. So we're yeah. back to the divine right of the emperor or something like that, where by nature of decree, it becomes right rather than being subject to any sort of higher natural law. Well, I think, I, I think you're right on it, for me at least. And I, 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 I mean, there's some assumptions baked into democracy, which I think still need to be argued out in society. I think one of the assumptions in democracy is this assumption that human beings are basically good and they will make decisions that are ultimately good. So, you know, you get the purely economic, like, you know, the selfish instinct, but ultimately you'll make decisions for, that are good for you, but you'll behave in ways that are good for society because being good for society ends up being good for you. I mean, there are ways to be reductionist about that, but ultimately, when you're putting the power of the vote in the hands of every adult in the country, let's just assume they're all citizens. We'll ignore the border for now. Uh, you're assuming that that person will make good decisions. And I think 
for me, the framers, you know, refer back to them a moment ago. They were able to do that because I think they had shared values. I think the society and the culture at the time was was homogenous uh, enough. Is homogenous the right word? It was uh, homogeneous. I don't know how you say, but and and it was small enough that and you limited the vote to a certain set of people. And I know I'm going to upset people by saying this, but by doing that, there's a, even though that to us seems distasteful, like oh goodness, that's sexist and racist and. Uh, classist and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you're actually, you have a group of people that are making decisions with shared values. Now you might not like the decisions they make, but I think what we lack right now is this understanding that shared values are important. And yeah, we might not agree on everything. Uh, I might work in a factory. You might be an executive in the plant. So we're different in some ways. But if we all agree that family is important, community is important, you know, whatever these things are, then we're still going to align when it comes to the ballot box. I think we're in a situation right now where we, we can't agree on, uh, you know, is the sun shining or is it snowing, even though we're able to look right out the window and see it. So when you don't have shared values, you have no check and balance, in my opinion, to kind of manage this broken part of humanity where we're not necessarily uh, good by nature. Now, I know there's an argument. Some people say, no, we are good by nature. It's environment that, that makes us bad. Other people say, no, we're bad by nature. And um, what's your take on that? What I'm saying is a flaw. Maybe you don't agree, but what's your take on the shared values discussion? Because when you talk about natural law, that's a shared value. They all seem to understand and agree on natural law. So they they just assume that that was part of the mix. What's your take on that for modern society? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, and, and it kind of maybe brings me back to something that I've mentioned a couple times, which is just how big the stakes are. Like, So how would it be different? I, I'm just posed the thought experiment in answer to your question. How would it be different if, if the United States of America had never expanded beyond the original 13 colonies that became the original states. And it was just this small nation on the eastern seaboard of North America um, surrounded by other countries, right? If they hadn't gone and... and if we hadn't been imperialistic. Had not been imperialistic and, and had just kept it the way it was. Hadn't, yeah, exactly. So the stakes would be a lot smaller. There would be... Um, you know, potentially a more sustainable system with a more homogeneous culture, uh, and who knows what what would have happened? Or, uh, you know, even even in that system, if perhaps at some point the thirteen states split over the issues of uh, over slavery or or other issues and become two smaller countries, right? It might just be that it's too darn big. It, you know, uh, the example I'll, I'll call back to an example I gave when I was on the Mentally Unscripted podcast, and it's a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit obtuse, but bear with me. Uh, you know, when uh, when socialism and communism were were kind of on their ascendancy in in the early part of the 20th century, and there was a, a lot of debate. Uh, Economist Ludwig von Mises really kind of settled the question of can communism succeed by pointing out that in a communist society where there are no market prices, it's impossible 
to allocate resources. It's impossible to know uh, sort of the market supply and demand, and you wouldn't be able to know if your business is profitable and all of these things. And so he he concluded and, and accurately predicted that communism would be uh, unsustainable. Now, it took 70 years or so uh, for the Soviet Union to fall, for the Berlin Wall to come down and all of those things. But it wasn't that Reagan beat the Ruskies. It was that the Ruskies beat the Ruskies because they didn't have a sustainable economic model. Now, why do I bring that up in, in this context? It may well be that the democratic Republican institutions of America likewise have a fundamental flaw, such as what you're pointing out, that people are not fundamentally good and they will engage in rent-seeking behaviors, they will engage in power-seeking behaviors, and that as it gets bigger and bigger and the stakes get higher and higher, people are just going to do what they've done. And if that's true, and and really if you kind of look at what's happening in America, it it's frighteningly seems like it might be true that we could be uh, nearing the end of that experiment and seeing that actually it's not sustainable and it's it's gonna uh, it's gonna fail under its own weight. And I'm not yeah. hoping for that. I'm yeah. saying you know just as an evaluation, it's certainly an option we have to consider. Yeah, I I was ref- reminded earlier when you mentioned this idea of the stakes are so high, uh, Hayek. Uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek made the argument that, you know, because there's so much to be gained in politics, this is my paraphrase, I'm not going to quote him because I'm not smart enough to do that, but because there's so much to be gained, politics will often, you know, attract the most unsavory characters. Those are the people that want that power. Uh, So I think that dynamic is just, I mean, it's been identified and I think that's at play What's interesting about your comment about the Soviet Union, I, I do agree that their economic model was not sustainable. I think I think there was another piece to that 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 was also part of this, part and parcel. And I think we're struggling with a similar problem. The Soviet Union, their model wasn't sustainable. Communism wasn't sustainable. But communism was based on this material dialectic, you know, this, this mm-hmm. kind of... Marx and and um, Hegel and all this, you know, thinking yep. that they were they were drunk on this idea that 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 economies and societies, not just economies, but societies, that they were strictly material. There was nothing transcendent. There was nothing sublime. That they were evolving, and that capitalism actually was a, a waypoint on the way to this perfect, you, you know, utopia. Because they were so convinced of this ideology, their society was based on lies. They, they would just, they, they would do all these mental gymnastics to prove, to, to, to argue why this vision of this utopia was, it had to happen. It was just the way that things were going to evolve. It was, you know, we were part of this amazing thing that the revolution and the rest of the world is going to go this way. So, so I think on an economic level, there was a lie in that system, uh, whether on purpose or not is immaterial, but it was based on a lie that just things that didn't, that were not true. Uh, but I think even on a societal level, the way people behaved, the way that they tried to structure families, the way that they um, had to live their lives, they could not live truthful lies. They had to look at something and, and spout the party line regardless. And, and I, th- it, it, 
and sometimes they believed it and sometimes they knew they were lying, but you just had to do what you had to do to get by. So I, I think the economics is a huge piece. I'm not trying to say, oh, that wasn't the real issue. The real issue is what, but I think when you have a society that's based on lies, I think we have a similar problem, but I think it's showing up in a different way. So we can argue or question, is capitalism sustainable, et cetera? I like your discussion about the size uh, of the, I think it's a really fascinating question. And I think that could be applied to things like business as well. You know, do we, are public companies healthy? Is it better to have a smaller, uh, an economy based on more small, medium-sized business? But all that aside, we're dealing with postmodernism, which is saying, look, uh, truth is relative. You, you, your truth is not necessarily my truth. Uh, I could be born one thing, but decide I'm born a male, but I've decided now I'm a woman and all of society has to agree with me. And as one example, I'm not trying to just pick on that one example, but the point being, I think more and more we have a society that is based on what I'm calling lies or untruths. And I, I think that that over time implodes. I just don't think you can sustain that over time because at some point reality comes crashing in. And often what it does, it's violent. Uh, when, when, you, when you ignore the truth, the truth will eventually hit you upside the head. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about that. I mean, do you see, and I'm not trying to get you to agree with me, but do you see this as an issue? Do you see postmodernism as an issue or is it strictly more of an economic issue and, and a power issue? Uh, well, I, I think that, I think the two go together. And so I'm not trying to separate them and I, and I agree with you. Uh, and I, I like your historic example. I've, uh, you know, I'm somewhat familiar with the, the Soviet, uh, experience. I've, I've certainly read some Solzhenitsyn, uh, and, uh, and others, but I'm actually much more familiar with Chinese history under, uh, under Chinese communism and, and through the revolution and through the, uh, the regime of, of Mao Zedong and that, that compulsion to lie. The great and, leap forward. Yeah, the Great Leap Forward. I mean, it, it was one of the most devastating events in in all of human history, so and it was engineered dead by some estimates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, fully engineered, and the the lies and the propaganda, where you know there uh, there were um, alleged photographs uh, showing how productive communist farming was compared to capitalist farming. Uh, they would they would have these fake propaganda photos that would show the wheat in the field growing so dense that a child was walking across the top of the of oh, the wheat stalks wow. because that's how dense it was growing under communist productivity and meanwhile harvests utterly failed and and uh millions of people tens of millions of people died of starvation uh there were natural disasters that contributed as well but the 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 institutions and the capability to cope with those natural disasters were degraded. And so it all, it all went together. So, uh, you know, I think, I think that, that anytime you have political institutions that compel lying, uh, then yeah, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. And, and I think that's, um, you know, the, whether it's, uh, the influence of postmodernism, whether it's you know the the loss of morality, because as I as I've said several times, and I guess is is a key part of my thesis, the stakes are just so high, and the 
institutions and the commitment to natural law and the checks and balances have eroded so much uh, that I think there is a lot of ability to lie. I mean, again, I, I'm not partisan. In case anyone can't tell from listening, I'm not. I don't claim either the the right or the left. I'm I I despise both with equal equal vigor. So, so whether check, it's if I check your Instagram, there'll be no photos of your new tattoo with Trump's face on it or anything like that. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I've, I I I keep it hidden at all times. Uh, so I'm going to say call out both Fox News and CNN or MSNBC or whatever. They have obviously more networks who are who are obviously biased to the left. Uh, but, and you've got, uh, Fox, I guess is maybe the only mainstream one that that's biased to the right, but they know they're lying and, and they know that we know that they're lying and we know that they know that we know they're lying. Everybody knows that everybody knows. Yeah. It's a weird thing. And so what I really think it is a, uh, it's a symptom of something, uh, that really does maybe harken back to to the postmodernism, I haven't really thought this all the way through, but I think it, I think it fits, which is, you know, it, the, the whole concept of tribalism, which I, I'm kind of getting tired of that. The term is now getting way overused, but it's still a valid thing. So you, to, to be aligned with the narrative to show that you're part of the tribe is more valued than the truth. So if I tell the truth, but in the process, I show that I'm not loyal to the tribe and I'm not willing to uh, uh, espouse the narrative, then I could get thrown out of the tribe. Yeah. In order to be part of the tribe, I'm going to say whatever is the acceptable narrative. And and I think that is a really dangerous place that we're at. And, and once again, I, I don't know that there are many people who would disagree with me unless maybe they're biased and would say, well, my side doesn't do that, but the other side does. <laughs> but well, I'll, I'll, I'll throw, I mean, I'll say the piece that people will disagree with. I agree with you. I think most people would say, yeah, that, that, that passes the sniff test, what Myron is saying, but I don't agree with Mike. And, th- and what I'm going to say is, I think part of our problem is people don't know who they are. And so they, you know, we're a very consumeristic society. It's about consumption. So we choose our tribe as an aesthetic choice. It's like, I'm looking for the tribe that helps me have the identity that I want to fashion for myself. I don't know that, I mean, you know, God bless you. If you want to try to create yourself uh, and and design yourself and and uh, create that an identity, that's, I mean, we go through these phases as children, adolescents, teenagers, but I think we have a nation of people who lack an identity and think that you go on Amazon and click a button to, to buy an identity, to, to fashion. And, and I think when you don't know who you are, then you choose a tribe. You know, true tribalism is you're born into a group of people that are genetically related. They have the same spirituality. They have the same, uh, you, you know, genetic code. They have the sp- same values, traditions. You know, I'm talking very primitive level, but you, you, it's a nation of sorts. But, you know, that's what nations made up of tribes. But you have all these shared things. You look at the people around you, they look like you and they talk like you and smell like you and eat like you and all that stuff. So, so now tribalism at that level becomes life or death. I'm, we work together to thrive, survive, carry on like the, the, like the Greek nation state, uh, or city state rather. I meant to say, you know, you, you're, you're an Athenian, Athenian, you're fighting for Athens cause that's your people. And, uh, 
I think now, as I keep repeating myself, tribalism is kind of like an aesthetic choice. It's like I want a fashion identity for myself. So this, I'm not so interested in what's true or real because this isn't about life or death for me. This is a fashion statement of sorts. It's an aesthetic statement. It makes me feel good about myself. I want my side to win and I need your side to be wrong because that affirms me versus this is what's Good. I, I feel like we're so, and I'll stop my rant in a second here. We're so far removed from living and the stakes. Our decisions are so far removed from the stakes of life and death. And I don't, I don't want to be living in a primitive tribal environment. I don't think that's a good environment. That our our choices, our decisions, they don't have the consequence. Uh, we're shielded from our consequences. And we actually demand that society save us from the consequences of our decision. And so I feel like we don't have any, I, I, you know, I'm painting with very broad strokes and Myron, you listen to my show. So, you know, sometimes I do this all the time, I should say, but uh, I feel there's something fundamentally broken about identity. And I think this gets at things like institutions. I think this gets at things like truth uh, and all that. I'll, I'll, I'll stop my rant by asking a question. Did you ever read uh, Yoram Hazoni's book, The Virtue of Nationalism? I think that came out, say, two, three years ago. Is that a book that's I familiar to you? I have not read that, no. Yeah, you, you, you might be interested in it. I mean, I think Hazoni is a Israeli-American intellectual, and he just makes the argument for... Uh, the virtues of nationalism, you know, we tend to, in our society here, nationalism, we think of uh, Nazism because that's what we're taught in school. But he said there's some good things, and there's some good checks and balances. And I, the reason I ask that is he kind of is talking about the difference between a nation versus an empire. And empires get too big. And it's hard to, it's hard to have your values carry through an empire, et cetera. But a nation is smaller it has more at stake, uh, so it doesn't want to go to war over, you know, like trivial things, et cetera. Might be worth your re a read at some point if if you're looking for more. But I think it it doesn't necessarily agree with everything you're saying, but I think it would add a, a facet or a vector to some of the some hmm. of your theory. Yeah, I, I will definitely check that out. Um, and as far as your uh, my rant. Your thoughts on yeah no it was good it was it was thought provoking and I'm not prepared to disagree with you because I had, actually hadn't thought through a lot of that before and and there's a lot there that resonates and is thought provoking but I will also offer maybe a different view on this sort of uh, as you're calling the aesthetic selection of tribes uh, I, I'm I'm going to maybe even call it a self protective selection of tribes. Oh, interesting. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, you see this, uh, again, I'm going to go back to, you know, both communism and fascism and, and uh, as well as other forms of autocratic government where the life of the individual becomes very arbitrary because you don't know what the rules are. And you saw this very, very starkly during some of the revolutionary periods. Again, I've, I've done some study of Chinese history, not an expert, but but during this period of time when they didn't know if the emperor was in charge or if the warlord was in charge or who's in charge. And so there was great times of uncertainty. You also saw the same uh, under under fascist regimes and as well as very, very clearly under under communist regimes where people don't know what the rules are going to be tomorrow. Mm. And I'm concerned, going back to our institutional discussion about America, that really because of the 
the bureaucratic nature of the state and these unelected institutions, as well as this abandoning of natural law and principles and the institutional checks and balances, which would cause public policy to be more stable over time and allow it to be more predictable so that you could plan for the future. Uh, It seems that, and I'm kind of just going on the fly here, I haven't totally thought this through, so correct me if you think I'm wrong, but it seems like um, even in America, the ability to plan for the future. Are we going to be locked down? Aren't we going to be locked down? Can I go to work? Can't I go to work? But even aside from the extreme uh, of COVID, you know, policies that might switch radically of uh, you, you have to have health insurance or you're going to pay a fine. Oh, we're not enforcing that. You don't really have to. All of these things that we can't really plan for the future. When people's lives become arbitrary, it forces them to have a uh, higher time preference. In other words, be more um, concerned about getting what I need for today, less able and less willing to invest for the future because you don't know what to invest in. You don't have certainty about what's going to happen. And so there may be sort of an institutional effect of this arbitrariness that's causing people to have high time preferences and less uh less willingness to delay gratification and less willingness to say, I'm going to do what's moral because whether it's, you know, heaven or karma or whatever someone believes in, that's the ultimate, um, you know, long-term low time preference. But if I, if I'm only able to really think about what do I need to do to survive today or tomorrow, because I don't know if the rules are going to change, That's also going to make that selection of tribes more on something self-protective or seemingly arbitrary as opposed to based on principle. I don't know if that supports what you're saying about the aesthetic choice or or disagrees with it, but I'm going to have to give that part of it more thought. I think it's a really interesting insight. And and as you were sharing it, my mind wasn't even going to, well, how does it connect to what I said? I just think it's a great insight. I think... A few things come to mind for me. I, I like, you know, what you put on the table. Um, I, I started thinking about this idea of totalization, that where you have the, the government becoming totalitarian. People hear that as a scary term, but it just for me means that the government becomes involved in the total experience of the individual. There aren't, you know, there used to be areas and not and within living memory where the government really had no say. There are things that you just lived your life and did, and the government didn't get involved. We we more and more see federal, state, you know, municipal governments involved in every aspect of someone's life: their family, their work, their sex, uh, their associations, the, all these kinds of things. And so, I I think one of the things that creates the sense that this is as I'm thinking about what you're saying, the sense of um, instability, I I can't plan for tomorrow, is this totalizing effect where the government becomes more and more involved. You know, I see a couple of thoughts come to mind here. Uh, Just recently, I I think this morning I read that there's been this exodus, a lot of people quitting their jobs, like a really big number. I forget, I want to, I don't want to quote the number, but it was like millions. I almost want to say, well, I don't want to quote it, but it was, it was remarkable this last month in December. And what they're postulating is that people are leaving the restaurant and services world sector. And it's not that they're just going on unemployment, they're getting out of those industries into other industries. And, and I kind 
kind of inferred from that is, well, yeah, if I'm a, a if I work in a restaurant, uh, you know, today we might be in business, but there could be a decree that comes down by some tin pot dictator over at the municipal hall that just says in our town, we're shutting down restaurants because COVID there is so much instability that people are saying, look, I got to, I'm getting killed over, I got to eat. And so I'm going to go work in a factory or a warehouse. They're desperate. You know, Amazon's uh, running pre-roll on YouTube saying, hey, we're paying 15 bucks an hour to start, you know, mm. and there's so much more. So I would imagine there's a shift to security. So I, I think that, you know, like this is just armchair kind of statistician here, but it sounds to me like people are choosing stability. Um, and I think, I think one of the things that keeps a government in check, this from becoming totalitarian are mediating institutions. We've been talking about American institutions, things like democracy, republicanism, et cetera. But there are mediating institutions that, you know, church, synagogue, you know, faith mm-hmm. entities, family, the arts. I mean, there are these different areas that provide space and safety neighborhoods would be an immediate for, for the individual to, to kind of know who they are and have, and it mediates between them and the state, meaning it provides a buffer. There's a bit of a, a buffer there where the individual can live their life without the state's, you know, boot on their shoulders at any moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other thing, the other example I'll throw out there is, is outside of just the restaurant workers, I, I'm taken by and maybe this has always been the case, you know, I haven't been alive for hundreds of years, so I can't look at different eras. But it seems to me there are certain institutions that were sacred, things like law. Now, you could say, oh, the listener could say uh, law has always been crooked. It's always been for the wealthy or it's, you know, and, and there might be some good arguments in there. But like there are certain laws in the books. If you if you were defending yourself, if you owned a property, you, you had the certain rights. There were just things that were kind of taken for granted, and you, it didn't matter if you lived in a Democrat or Republican city. You know, it, just certain things that just people were afforded. And I think we're seeing. I, I think at least we have the sense, whether statistically this measures up or not, we have the sense that. Even the law has become fluid. And so what's the flavor of the day? What's the feeling of the day? It doesn't matter if a person broke a law or didn't break a law. How do we all feel about this? And if we have outrage, then we're demanding a certain outcome. And if we don't, you know, we want a different outcome. Now, I'm not saying that the outcomes are necessarily always going with the mob's desire. But I think there's a sense, at least for me, a sense of the law seems like it's on rickety it's on a rickety still. It's like this thing's going to buckle at any moment. It feels like people are just pushing and pushing and it's going to fall over. Whereas before it, it felt like, again, these are all feelings, but the law was this monolithic thing that would always stand because it was the law. Now, you, there's a process for changing laws, et cetera. But even that was stable. And uh, so I don't, I'm not... Yeah, I, all I'm saying is the fascinating concept, and I and I do agree with the thought you've put out there. I think this is something worth exploring further. Let me ask. Let me ask a question, Myron. Um, I think we could go on uh, over many episodes, and maybe we should at some point uh, over these types of topics. It, but if I'm a listener, I'm sitting there going, "Okay, this is all great, but like, what do we do?" Because just like the guy at the beginning we joked about who said, actually, it's not a democracy, it's it's a republic. That guy can say that. He can chide or chastise the person who said it's a democracy. But there's a reality. 
And the reality is we, we view and behave as a democracy, as a nation. It doesn't matter on paper what we are. It's how we, what we do and behave. So we've got this situation. Things are too big. There's too much at play. There's corruption. There's, there's just all these forces. What, what do we do? Where do we go from here with this? What are our, what are the options? How do we make this? What, what does the average person do? And what do we as a nation do? Yeah, that is the tough question. Because and you, so in much 30 of it seconds is, before the commercial you're, you're, break. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, if I have to boil it down to the 30 you seconds, don't, then you I, don't, I, I, you don't. Well, I, I will, and then we can explore it more if we want. But I, I simply, as an individual, uh, try to hold firmly to principle and hold loosely to politics so that I can think more clearly about these issues and not get drawn into that distracting battle that probably matters a lot less than than we think and certainly even if even if it does matter it, it doesn't benefit my day-to-day -day life nearly as much as it benefits the people at the top who are the ones who get in power or are pushed out of power so i just i hold firmly to principles but i hold loosely to politics and and what does that look like? I, I mean, I, I like that. I think it's a very memorable, easy to, to, to remember statement. But what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? It, because I'd love to tell you, oh, I'm not a, I mean, I'm a registered, I mean, I, I don't, I'm a registered Republican, very frustrated with the Republican Party. I really call myself a Burkean conservative and people go, oh, you're a conservative. A lot of people don't even know what that means. I'm probably more of a monarchist than I am uh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. if you're a Burkean conservative, we cannot be friends, Mike. I'm that's sorry. What, yeah, no. See, that's the my point is I hold loosely to politics in that I I can be friends and have conversations with people uh, all across the spectrum, uh, and sometimes those are conversations where we talk about politics and we know that we disagree and we can have respectful conversations with other people. I just don't discuss politics because um, pretty much everybody's going to find something about my views that offends them. And, and if, if we can't have a civil conversation about it, then I can talk to them about other things. Now, I have lost friendships, uh, not a lot, but a few over the years where people didn't want to be my friend because I didn't agree with them. But uh, I guess the holding loosely to politics part of that means that I, I'm not going to choose who my friends are or aren't based on their political views or finding things to disagree about if, in fact, we can find some common ground on principles that we agree about. And, you well, know, the same thing uh, applies in, in so many areas of life. But, you know, I think about over over the past few years with a lot of the, the racial tension uh, in, in America uh, and much some of it for very valid reasons, some of it for perhaps questionable reasons. But I, I'm just struck by how when you look at the media and the 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 strife between blacks and whites is played up so much. And yet I can walk out my door and walk down the street and I'm a white guy uh, in case someone hasn't guessed that. And I can I can see a black person on the street and have a civil conversation about sports, about family, about kids, about whatever. And so, um, you know, there there are areas of tension in life and there are people who 
would not want to have a conversation because of politics, because of race, because of whatever. But most people want to find common ground and get along with each other. And if we focus more on that, I think, uh, can we... Can we fundamentally change these institutional problems? Uh, I, I don't think I can, but uh, it doesn't have to ruin my life. No, I appreciate that. And I, you know, my question is, uh, and you made the statement, most people are looking for common ground. I think to be able to to know that as a reality, to experience it, you have to engage these people. I mean, I think part of our issue is we don't engage one another. And we tend to accept the narrative that we're categorized, meaning you're a white male, I'm a white male, oh, that's a black female, you know, and, and so that you, you then ascribe characteristics, belief sets, uh, virtue even based on categories. And um, once you start engaging as an individual, you go, hey, uh, this guy's actually pretty cool or this gal's, I like her, she's interesting. And I'm surprised. I would have thought that she believed X, Y, and Z, but actually, uh, you know, she wants to have a big yeah. family or, you know, what fill in the blank, whatever your assumptions were. I, and I think, I think, uh, you know, this idea of principle versus politics, we, we, because of the degradation of these mediating institutions, this is my argument, because of the lack of shared values and even this discussion of postmodernism, like where, where truth is subjective, all that's really left is power. When you take a lot of that stuff off the table, all that's left is power. And I think there's this struggle for power. But as human beings, truth and virtue and and family and all these things, they don't go away. We might as a society argue that we don't need them anymore, that we're going to refashion them. But, but I think, you know, you go back to natural human law, the right to life, the right uh, to freedom, the right to your own property. I, I think there are some just basic human needs for a society to flourish, and we're going to have to come to terms with these things. So I think the challenge is engaging people. And I think your decision and, and purposefulness about holding politics loosely allows you to engage people. I think my concern is in a society where we don't hold our politics loosely we refuse to engage. We just categorize and, and, and that just exacerbates the problem. It amplifies it. So I think we need to preach that gospel, Myron. We need people to, we really need people engaging one another on principles and ideas as opposed to ideology and politics. Yep. And, and be, uh, willing to find common ground and hopefully also be able to talk about differences, but, uh, but start with common ground. Yeah, I agree. Myron, thank you for being a guest today. I want people to be able to follow up with you. I will post the uh, your podcast, the Mental Supermodels podcast link in the show notes. Folks, again, you can find that at MikeGaston.com forward slash the currency 113. Uh, but Myron, is there any other way that you'd like people to get in touch with you or is there any other thing that you'd like to promote? Well, you know, for the I, I tend to try to connect with folks on LinkedIn. I know it's not a perfect platform, but uh, you know, I, I'm I kind of business focused. And so I, I don't, I'm not, uh, uh, on a lot of social media presence as, uh, and so you're uh, not a TikTok influencer. I, I, I'm not a TikTok influencer yet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's still time, <laughs> but, but yeah, so there are not a lot of Myron Webbers on LinkedIn. That's a great thing about my name. Uh, so it's pretty easy to find me on on LinkedIn. So Myron Weber at Northwood Advisors yep. uh, is uh, 
is pretty easy to find. Yeah, so that's M-Y-R-O-N-W-E-B-E-R, Myron Weber. Myron, thank you so much. Fantastic discussion. This hour went by so quickly. I appreciate your time and uh, look forward to having another discussion soon. Thanks. Guys, thanks again for listening. Uh, As you know, I love you all. I'll catch you in the next episode. And if you want, get in touch. You can hit me up. Just go to my website, mikegaston.com. There's a sign up there. You can also subscribe to my email newsletter, et cetera, et cetera. I'll catch you all in the next episode. Cheers. Thank you.